You're listening to audio from Parkview Church in Iowa City, Iowa. If you'd like to learn more about Parkview, find more resources, or give to our ministry, please visit parkviewchurch.org. Here's, here's what our Lord said in the middle of his famous sermon, either on the mount or the plain or wherever, one of his sermons. He wrote this in Luke chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 27 to 36. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your father is merciful. Eric Nuremberg and his wife Christina and his kids Maya and Chase, they have been part of our family now for approximately two years. And during that time, they have blessed us immensely, haven't they? Now, if you talk with Eric, you'll know that he cares for people. He is the heart of a shepherd. And he also loves God's word and loves to share it. And that's what he's going to do right now. He's going to be preaching this this passage to us this morning, Luke chapter 6. Let me pray for him and for us, okay? Father, thank you for bringing Eric and his family to our church family and for the impact that they have had. Father, we pray, use Eric now as your instrument as he preaches your word. Oh, Father, we pray that the power of your spirit transforms us further into whole disciples who love like Jesus. Amen. Thank you, brother. Thank you for reading that passage of Scripture. As Len said, I'm Eric. I'm one of your deacons here at, at Parkview, and I'm just excited to have the opportunity to, to uh, come this morning and, and look at these critical words that Jesus has for us, um, which are just of the utmost importance for, for his disciples. And that's us, right? That's us. We're his disciples. And Jesus doesn't ease into his sermon, so I guess we'll just dive right into this one, which I've entitled, Loving God, or I'm, I'm sorry, Loving Our Enemies as God Does. So I'll ask you a question to start out, and that is, how, how are you loving people? How are you getting along with people? 
And when I ask you that, it's probably easy to think of your friends and your close co-workers and <clears throat> your brothers and sisters in Christ and the people who are in your group and those who are like you, the ones who are easy to get along with, right? But, but let, me, let me be more specific with my question. How are you getting along with, how are you treating people who are outside of your trusted people group? How are you treating the person who talks to you like you're stupid? Or the one who lies to you or about you? Or the one who has stolen from you or taken credit for the work you did? Or the one who falsely accuses you? How are you getting along with them? Now, we were in Luke prior to the Advent season and we're getting back there now. So please reflect on the question that I ask you while I take a moment to reorient us to our journey through the Gospel of Luke. And and, uh, remembering what has happened to this point will really help us to understand Uh, our our challenging passage of Scripture this morning. So we know that that Luke was raised among the Gentiles and became a faithful companion of the Apostle Paul. And one thing we see repeatedly in Luke's Gospel is the love and compassion that Jesus has for Gentiles. And remember that the Gentiles are the others in the Jewish world. Those who were minimized or reviled by the religious hierarchy. Uh, People mainly like foreigners. Uh, outsiders, sometimes women and children and Samaritans and certainly tax collectors. And Luke addressed the societal and religious elite regarding the need for salvation in Christ Jesus. But consistently, Luke really underscores how Christ ministered to the pariahs and to the downcast and to the ones who had a sense that they could not help themselves. And in Luke, we've So far, examined the angel Gabriel announcing to Mary that she was highly favored, and we have the virgin birth of our Savior in Luke chapter 2, and we've seen amazing accounts from Jesus' youth and the ministry of John the Baptist and the genealogy of Christ at the end of chapter 3, and Jesus being tempted by Satan in the wilderness in chapter 4. And prior to Advent, we were really digging into the beginning of Christ's Galilean ministry. So... So let me remind you that he was teaching in the synagogues throughout Galilee, which was his home region, right? And and he went into the synagogue of his youth in his hometown where he was well known to all. And he read a messianic prophecy from Isaiah chapter 61. And after reading that prophecy, he proclaimed himself in the synagogue to be the prophecy's fulfillment. And those in the synagogue, they looked at each other in disbelief and they said, isn't this Joseph's son? And their disbelief quickly turned into something else when Jesus quotes passages from 1st and 2nd Kings to suggest that God's grace may be withheld from Jews but given to Gentiles. And the reaction that we see there is telling about what many pious Jews and religious leaders thought about themselves. Here's Jesus, a young man whom they know, who proclaims himself to be the promised Savior. And they say, essentially, get a load of this guy. But Jesus suggests that a Gentile might receive a blessing that is withheld from from a Jew. And, and And what are they? They are filled with wrath and they tried to kill him. So Jesus is radical and disruptive. And while preaching God's truth is is really attacking a perverse religious culture that's characterized by sin and it's characterized by pride. You know, the the scribes and the Pharisees called Jesus a blasphemer in this book for claiming to forgive sins, and they condemned him because he ate with tax collectors. And and I just want you to remember for for a moment that that Jews, you know, Jews largely hated Gentiles. 
um, the others. And the others that they largely hated the most were the Romans. And the people that they hated even more than the Romans were tax collectors. The tax collectors were Jews who had betrayed their own people, aligned themselves with the occupiers, and, and, and extorted the people on behalf of the Roman government and the Roman elite, and, and often extorted them for their own gain. Now, in chapter 6, the Pharisees attacked Jesus for doing good on the Sabbath, using their own broken tradition and their misinterpretation of the Scriptures to accuse Him. And yet, Jesus exerted His heavenly authority in their presence by proclaiming that, that He was the Lord of the Sabbath. And their response to that was to be filled with rage and to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. And again, that's plotting His death. In Luke 6, 12, Jesus went out to a mountain to pray all night, and the next day he called his large group of disciples to him, and, and from them he chose the 12 apostles, and having chosen the 12, he prepares to address them and the rest of all of his disciples and a great multitude of people that were desiring to be healed. And because of the accounts that we have throughout Scripture uh, of his previous crowds and really a, a knowledge of the excitement and the controversy around his ministry, we know that, that there were also many doubters and antagonists and enemies and also many people who were just curious in that crowd. Then Jesus pronounces the blessings and the woes, and these are part of the sermon known as the Beatitudes, which have the effect really of drawing, drawing a, a wide line of demarcation between those who trust in status and wealth and legalistic righteousness and those who acknowledge their personal insufficiency and spiritual poverty. And this sermon by the Son of God clearly identified the inconsistencies between the Creator's art and Jewish tradition. Now this in no doubt had the added effect of generating wonder and excitement among the downtrodden while making many of the privileged and self-sufficient pretty angry. Jesus continues his sermon by establishing an idea that was on the one hand completely contrary to the culture, but which on the other is the solid foundation of the gospel. It is the pinnacle of the good news, and it's the heart of the reason that Jesus came to save. And that's when he said, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who abuse you. That's the heart of the gospel of Christ for us. I want you to let it sit with you for a minute. Love your enemies. And let's not think about it in the general sense right now. Let's think specifically. Think about a person. Love your enemy. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Hebrews 4.12 says that the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and it pierces even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and it's a discerner of the intentions and thoughts of the heart. And this Word that we have most certainly pierces right down to the strongholds of our heart. So this morning we're going to examine three important takeaways that can be framed up like this. Number one, love your enemies. Number two, live mercy. And number three, be sons of the Most High. Love enemies, live mercy, be sons of the Most High. So in a way, this message is entirely about enemies. And I'm no stranger to enemies, are you? We live in a world where it seems that hatred and accusation and suspicion and fear and distrust are, are kind of the new building blocks. 
And everywhere we turn, there's division, and people are looking past our words and actions to define intent, uh, and, and that's become commonplace, just as inflicting suffering for that perceived intent is now no surprise to anyone, really. If you've been canceled, or if you've been attacked personally, or if you've been lied about, you likely know what, what it is to have an enemy. And if you've been assaulted, or insulted, or denigrated, or lied about, or ridiculed, and taken advantage of, falsely accused, or been made a scapegoat, you likely know what it is to have an enemy. And I'll bet that's happened to all of you to some extent. And that's discouraging to us, but, but, but things by many measures were less harmonious in the times of Jesus. You know, the, the Jews had God's instruction regarding how to treat others just as we do. God commands, for instance, in Leviticus 19, that we should love our neighbors as we love ourselves. And how do we love ourselves? We love ourselves pretty well, don't we? Generally. We give ourselves a lot of latitude. We give ourselves a, a, a lot of mercy. We love ourselves so much that we often have an entirely different standard that we hold ourselves to. Have you noticed that it's pretty easy for us to judge others by their actions, but ourselves by our intent? The problem in Jesus' day is that the religious leaders had perverted God's command by defining who their neighbor was. They'd forgotten totally about loving as they loved themselves because nobody deserved to be loved that much. And then they sought to narrow their responsibility more by defining who their neighbor was and who their neighbor wasn't. And where they ended up was here, that, that our neighbor was someone that was like us, part of our group. And our group are the Jews. If you're not a Jew, then you're not a neighbor and there's no reason to, to love you. But it wasn't just the Jews. They also excluded Jews who were tax collectors and prostitutes, and others who consorted with the Romans, and those who broke the law. And we even see in John 7, verse 49, that, that the, the scribes and Pharisees curse the commoners who do not know the law. They excluded almost everyone. John MacArthur says that the religion of Judaism at that time had flattened God's commands to one external dimension to justify hate, anger, and vengeance. And he calls it superficial Pharisaic legalism. But the question that we might ask of ourselves today is if we love according to the holy and perfect standard of God, or do we love according to the superficial standard of man? And then to remember that Jesus commands us not only to love those who are like us and those who are outside of our group, but to love our enemies and those who hate us. And that's countercultural in the first century. And brothers and sisters, you know it's countercultural today. And we cannot hope to understand how countercultural it is if we don't comprehend what kind of love Jesus is talking about. Because he wants us to understand. So let's take a look. We talk about love a lot and often we misrepresent it. We misunderstand it. I love my job of being a firefighter. I love burritos. I love my wife and children. I love when little Hudson Mobley runs past all of you all to give me a hug. But English has one word for love, and I think we often miss out on understanding because the word is used generally and interchangeably, just as I did now. You don't really know what it means. And there are multiple deeply descriptive words for love in Greek, and there's four kinds that are found in the Bible. And, and very quickly, the first is you know, the romantic love of attraction. 
And the second is the kindly affectionate love, uh, uh, the overflowing type of love that family has for family or that brothers and sisters in Christ have for one another. And, and a third kind is, is a brotherly love. That's a, a deep, deep friendship. It's the through thick and thin kind of love that David and Jonathan shared. But the fourth is the kind of love that we're talking about today, and that's agape love. Agape is a Greek word. And agape love is a sacrificial, serving, giving love that is concerned with the good of its object. This is so much more than a feeling, brothers and sisters. But it's really a love of action, of doing and being loving. This is the love that we see, for instance, in Romans 5, 8, for God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is a love that is characterized by mercy and sacrifice and that knows nothing of retribution. And so we should love our enemies with agape love, showing and serving and giving the good uh, for the good of our enemy. And that's convicting if we're thinking about a specific enemy. And you'll notice that there's no checkbox check here. We, we satisfy no requirement by deciding that we love that horrible person in our life and then going on our way. We have to acknowledge that the verb is, is present tense. And the meaning that Jesus conveys to us is that we should be constantly loving our enemy. Constantly loving. In a way that is no secret to that person. Think about it. This is how God relates to us, right? It is. We are constant recipients of God's benevolent love, even though we all in times past have been his enemies. Listen, we all know that loving our enemy with agape love is hard. For me, when I'm thinking about that person who is really doing me wrong, when I see their face and I hear Jesus tell me to be constantly loving toward that person, do you know what the reaction of my heart is? The reaction of my heart is they don't deserve it. Have you ever thought that for yourselves? Have you ever thought, I'm not going to love my enemy because they don't deserve my love? And you know what? If you've ever thought that, you're right. You are absolutely correct. Your enemy does not deserve your love. They don't deserve your love at all. But we should remember a couple of things. We should remember that we are people created in the image of God and whom God loves, separated by some offense from who? From a person who is created in the image of God and whom God loves. We need to take it a step further yet and realize that we're lowly people separated from a holy God and consigned to eternal hopelessness by our sin, but forgiven through Jesus our Savior. Yeah, our enemy is undeserving of, of our love. And much more, brothers and sisters, we are undeserving of the love that we have received from God. We have received, so we must give. 1 John 4.19 says that we love because he first loved us. So we can love, we should love, we must love. Why? Because he loved us. And if you're taking notes, write this down. You are never more like your father in heaven than when you love your enemy. 
Okay, Jesus continues here in this first breath by commanding us to pray for those who spitefully use us. And I'll ask you again, do you have someone in your life who spitefully uses you? You might be blessed if you've only got one. But here's the thing. If there's someone who's spitefully uh, using you, that's, that's spiteful towards you, deceitful, abusing, taking advantage of you, putting you down maybe to make themselves look better, whatever they're doing, I'll bet, if you're anything like me, and you have that person in your life, you're thinking about them. Do you think about them? You're probably thinking about them a lot more than they're thinking about you. And does God want us to sit and ruminate on a slow burn about our enemy? He does not, brothers and sisters, and we know that because of this passage. You're spending time thinking about them anyway, so pray for them. R.C. Sproul has an excellent testimony of a ministry when he was in Pittsburgh where brothers would gather together every day at lunchtime uh, for 30 days at a time to pray for specific enemies and antagonists in their lives. And you know what they experienced? Joy and forgiveness and disillusion of roots of bitterness and restoration of relationships. And I can tell you that in my own life, that I've suffered tribulation at the hands of those who use me spitefully and deceitfully to the point that many of, my, of aspects of my life were impacted in ways that I never could have anticipated. But one of the many ways that God was faithful to me in the midst of those trials was that he led me to acknowledge this command. And when I could do little else, I prayed for my antagonist routinely. And I'm thankful that God healed my heart and removed bitterness so that I wasn't distracted by my own pride and my own hate. And in that way, I could better commit myself by his grace to letting his strength be perfected in my weakness. Don't simmer. Don't burn in anchor. Don't entertain thoughts of retribution. Don't be distracted by your enemy. Don't be drawn away from God. Don't let the deceiver trick you into damaging the testimony of his grace in your life. Pray for those who use you. And this brings us to the second point, which is uh, the imperative to live mercy. So we love enemies. We live mercy. And mercy means giving to someone something that's undeserved. Is that correct? So we cannot hope to love our enemies or to do good to those who hate us or to bless those who curse us and to pray for those who spitefully use us unless we embrace the mercy that has been modeled by our own Savior. And I want you to paint this picture in your mind as I describe it. A Messiah who left his throne in heaven, was born a man, and only a few short chapters into the Gospel of Luke has already been the subject of disbelief and doubt and rage and ridicule. And the men of his own hometown thrust him out of the synagogue and out of the city and tried to throw him off of a cliff. And yet what's to come is that he will be accused, judged, sentenced to death. The king of eternity who possesses all power... And all dominion, both now and forever, was cursed and spit upon and had a crown of thorns thrust upon his head and was nailed to a cross among thieves in a slow and agonizing death where he bore the shame of my sin and your sin. And they gambled for his clothes. The rulers taunted him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. The soldiers at the foot of the cross mocked their own creator, saying, If you're king of the Jews, save yourself. These things are being said and done to the one who came that we might have life. 
The one who at the beginning of the gospel of Luke has angels proclaiming, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And in the midst of all of this nastiness and hate and undeserved persecution and torture, what does Jesus do? Is he indignant? Does he plot retribution? Does he threaten? He doesn't do any of those things that we do. He he prays for them. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. All the people who did those things. That, my friends, is what mercy looks like in its purest form. Something that is entirely undeserved. And I can confess to you that this is seldom my response when someone does me wrong, and yet this is what we're commanded to do. By the one who did the same for his enemies. And so we can pray, Lord God, please, teach us to show mercy like Jesus showed mercy. So our Savior continues to give us examples of merciful behavior in those instances of personal insult where we would be more likely, more prone to seek retribution. He says, if if someone strikes you on one cheek, offer the other also. Now, this isn't entirely about allowing yourself to get pummeled, okay? Uh, in those days, much as it ever was, a slap is, is meant much more as an insult than, than trying to, to inflict physical harm. And it was a very personal inf- insult. Masters slapped slaves, and the elite slapped the destitute, and the Romans slapped the Jews. And Jesus, I believe, here wants to really draw us into the dimension of personal offense. Frankly, the offenses that, that, that hurt us the most... Not things of a criminal nature or things which can be addressed by the rule of law uh, and perhaps not even offenses which diminish us materially because God has clearly instituted establishments within our government to help us, uh, to help protect us from that sort of victimization. But he gives us this analogy of the slap to tell us that when we are personally offended, when our ego is hurt, when our pride is damaged, in those instances, do not retaliate. Do not seek retribution even when your flesh wants nothing more. Give the offender something else. Give him the other cheek. And say, you can't hurt my pride because my boast is not in myself. My boast is in the cross of Christ. If he takes your cloak, Jesus says, give him your shirt also. Give to everyone who asks of you. If they take something, don't ask for it back. And just as you want men to do to you, you also do likewise. That's hard stuff. But when I hear that, I'm reminded of Philippians 2.3, which says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Not count your friends and loved ones more significant than yourselves. Count others more significant. So if he slaps you on the one cheek, give him the other. And if he takes your cloak, give him your shirt and, and love your enemy. And bless those who curse you. And pray for those who use you. Do it. Do it. Live mercy. If you love Jesus, brothers and sisters, live his mercy. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter, has several attributes, right, of love that we would do well to study to better understand the love that Jesus has. And and this chapter says that love is patient, which means it's an enduring love. And love is kind, That means that it's a merciful love. 
And it is not arrogant. It does not seek its own way. And that means it's a humble love. And that's why, brothers and sisters, being partakers in the love of Jesus Christ, that we can love with long-suffering, and we can love with mercy, and we can love with humility. And that means, all of those things mean that we will never say what we're most prone to say, aside from they don't deserve it. And that is, but, but, but I know my rights, and you can't treat me that way. How many times have you said that? probably haven't said it as many times as I have. I don't know about you, but I'm pretty good about thinking about what my rights are and about what I deserve. But we would do better whenever we think about rights to be reminded that Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And that, brothers and sisters, is our responsibility. Pastor Adrian Rogers said that if you teach a man his rights, you'll have a revolution. But if you teach a man his responsibilities, you'll have a revival. And, and do you really want to double down on how we can live mercy despite ourselves? You want to know how to seize the sanctifying power of Jesus in your life? Parkview, you can understand it that we do not have to be concerned with the insults in our lives or the slander that we receive at work or the hypocrisies or ideologies of a, per, of a perverse generation. And the reason why is because we've been bought at a price, 1 Corinthians 6.20. We've been bought at a price and we are not our own. We belong to someone else. That is sacrificial love, which seeks the good of the one who is loved. That's agape love the characterized by action love that Christ commands us to have for our enemies. So this fall, this past fall, I took my annual pilgrimage to Kelowna to the Fall Fun Festival. If, if you know about the Fall Fun Festival, I don't, I don't have to tell you, but if you don't, it's a, it's a magical and wondrous place. Um, full, full of a, a full day's worth of activities that, that span centuries. And even though it's great fun, I go for one reason, and that's because the Hillcrest Academy parents run a stand where they, sell, they make and sell apple fritters, okay? And these are delicious things that are made right before your eyes where they're grinding up apples and shredding them and mixing them with the batter and frying them up into a shape of a baseball, and they taste so good, and, and uh, you have to wait a long time, you know, because the line's long and, and, and they're in high demand, and, and it builds anticipation, and it just start, it's, makes you crazy a little bit, Right? The apple fritter. And this year, while waiting at the apple fritter stand, I, I spotted the Mennonite History Museum, and I'd never been in, so I went in. And uh, uh, it, it, was, it was just, it was a really great place. I, I recommend it. You know, I love studying about the history of the Reformation. That's one of the subjects I really like to read about. And, and uh, in, in the, the Mennonite History Museum, uh, I was learning about how the Reformation spread from Germany into Holland and how fellow followers of a, of a former Catholic priest named Menno Simons were being ruthlessly persecuted for rejecting Catholic tradition and embracing biblical truth. And while there, I learned of a young husband and father named Dirk Willems. And Dirk was a leader in the reform, reform movement and held secret worship services in his home and, and prayer meetings in his home and, and for rejecting papal authority... And for practicing believers' baptism, Dirk Willems was arrested and imprisoned in the local palace until he could be tried by the Catholic Church. And Dirk knew 
that that meant that he would be tortured and killed. And you know what? Dirk didn't want that to happen. So after a period of imprisonment, Dirk tied a bunch of cloths together and made a rope and he shimmied down out of the palace and, and escaped. When his feet hit the ground, he was immediately pursued by a guard. And he ran for his life because Dirk wanted to get to his wife and children who were in hiding. And while being chased across a body of frozen water, his pursuer fell through the ice. And do you know what Dirk did? Did he rejoice at the misfortune of his captor? Did he seize the opportunity to slip away to his family? He didn't. He turned around and pulled his pursuer from the freezing water likely knowing full well what it meant for him. I would imagine that even as Dirk continued to run and decided to slow down, and he turned around, that he knew that doing so would cost him his life. That if he reached out his hand to save his enemy, that he would never see his children again. And you know what? He was right. While the guard he saved pleaded with officials for dirt to be released, he was returned to prison, he was tortured, and refusing to renounce his faith in Christ alone, he was burned at the stake, and he was burned slowly. This man had a wife and children like I do, and people who depend on him like I do, and I wonder if it would even occur to me to do the same thing that Dirk Willems did, that while running to save my own life, that I would turn on my heel and sacrifice it for my enemy. But God tells us that he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust, and I don't know what I would have done, but I believe that Dirk's decision was informed largely by two unshakable truths. One, the first was this, Dirk, Dirk knew that God loved him as surely as if he were the only person in the world. And I don't know this, but I believe probably to justify the sacrifice, Dirk Willems knew that God loved his enemy just as surely as if he were the only person in the world. I also like the perspective that John Piper has about living mercy. And he says that one of the biggest stumbling blocks we have in loving and serving and praying for our enemies is that it can feel like we're letting our enemy get away with something. And brothers and sisters, let me assure you, what you probably already know, nobody's getting away with anything. We can be grieved when God is dishonored and we can hate the things that God hates, but we cannot hate our enemies and not even if they hate God. The judgment is not ours. We see that even in today's passage. The brother Len read, how can you say to your brother, brother, let me remove the speck that's in your eye, but don't perceive the plank that's in your own, you hypocrite. Judgment belongs to the Lord and vengeance is his alone. And nobody is getting away with anything because our enemy's sin will be paid for just like ours. Either in eternity or at the cross. We can't add to either. But we can submit to be used for the latter. And who needs Jesus more than your enemy? Who deserves your faithful testimony more than your enemy? We should love our enemies and live mercy. And now let's wrap it up, shall we? How can we do these things? How can we show our enemies a giving, blessing, serving, merciful love that seeks their good? We can't.
I can't. The only answer is to be sons of the Most High, and that's our third point. Okay, so verses 35 and 36 of this passage say, But love your enemies, do good and lend, expecting nothing in your return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. How can we hope to love our enemies? To do good to those who hate us? To bless those who hurt us? That's get the right perspective on who your father is. And I want us to consider that who he is is characterized in large part by what he has done and what he is doing in your life. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe on him should not perish but have everlasting life. God so loved the world brothers and sisters. And if you want to see the example the Creator has for us, then you need to come to acknowledge that the only people that were in the world were His what? His enemies. There are none righteous, not one. There is none who seek after God. If you have your Bible, turn with me quickly to Ephesians chapter 2. And I'll read this passage. If you have Christ as your Savior, I trust you'll be encouraged to see what a loving God has done for you, His enemy. In Ephesians 2 it says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Being rich in mercy towards children of wrath because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our disobedience to him. Be sons of the Most High. Knowing that we love because he first loved us. Jesus said in John 13, 34, 35, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you're my disciples, that you love one another. So, so please, brothers and sisters, don't let that verse slip you by. John 13, 34, and 35. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Love like Jesus did. Radical to the crowd in Galilee, I can assure you, and radical today in Iowa City. But don't miss this. Don't miss this. The entire passage that Brother Len read and that we've looked at this morning prescribes for us how we're to treat people who aren't really our people at all. But Jesus does even more what only he can do. Remember when I told you that really this passage is all about enemies? It's true, but it's really just all about love. Jesus does what only he can do. He shows us in the clearest detail in this passage how much we are loved by God. And the more you think about that, the more convicted towards obedience you'll become. So let's, let's draw this to a close now. Love enemies, live mercy, be sons of the Most High. But let's recall that just recently, a couple weeks ago, Pastor Thomas exhorted us to this very thing. Our conduct, our interactions, our service, and the attitudes of our heart towards obedience reveal what we believe about the King of Kings. Loving your enemy is the gospel. 
Doing good to those who hate you is the doctrine of the church. Although we weren't in Luke then, Pastor Thomas gave us the same challenge from the word that we're receiving today. Our faith is manifested and the love of God is shown when we love those who are different from us. We are never more like our Heavenly Father than when we love our enemy. How tragic it would be if we unsaid with our actions what we proclaim with our mouths. God desires our obedience, and much more than that, He commands us to be obedient, and He commands us to be obedient in a way that, guess what, is impossible in our own strength, but more than possible in the strength of the one who loves us and gives us everything that we need for life and for godliness. But the warning here is that lip service doesn't work, folks, and neither do feelings and thoughts of the heart alone. This is where we have to get serious with our Jesus. Calling him Lord does two things. It gives him a title that he already has, and it can give us a sense of false security, but making him Lord gives him control over you and your life, over me and my life. And if we want revival in the world and growth in the church and a relationship with our creator that makes every other fade by comparison, and if we want to give him the glory that he richly deserves, we must submit to him in obedience. We must look into the Word of God to see how we must live that we might be blameless and harmless in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among who we live as lights in the world. We must submit to the Holy Spirit in our lives who is within us and is a gift from God and guides us according to His Word who Jesus promised us will teach us all things and bring all things to our remembrance whatsoever Christ has said. Love your enemies the way that God does. Live the mercy that you have received. And be sons of the Most High, in His power, by His Spirit, according to His Word. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this time to look into Your Word and be reminded of the great love with which You loved us. And even as we desire, Father, to be obedient to Your command of loving our enemies, we know that we can do nothing apart from You. Create in us a desire, Lord, and a discipline to seek your truth and to do your perfect will, not in our strength or for our glory, God, but in yours and for your, for your glory. Let all men know that we are disciples of our Savior, Jesus Christ, by the love that we have for others, even and especially our enemies. Thank you, God. Amen.